0: ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Greetings, I'm Tom Gilson. Today on ID the Future, we conclude our presentation of a panel discussion on dangerous trends flying under the false cover of science and scientific thinking. This comes from a panel discussion given in August 2022 at an insider's briefing for scientists, scholars, and supporters of the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute. First to speak in this portion of the panel is Wesley J. Smith, author of many books and a frequent spokesperson for bioethics, and one who remembers what it means to be human in the process. John West, Vice President and Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute, follows him with more on this matter of dehumanization in the name of science.
1: We're talking about the consequences of materialism, and John asked me if I would talk about the instrumentalization of unborn human life uh, during this presentation, and I'll be, of course, not happy to do so, but I think it's important that we do so because we have to understand The evil that this way comes. Um, We're talking about what's known as bioethics. And bioethics is a contraction for biomedical ethics, and it's a movement, and I believe it's a social movement and a political movement, that seeks to uh, change medical ethics away from the Hippocratic Oath and seeks to create a relativistic view of human life, that there is something called, they call it the quality of life ethics, so that if a person has higher capacities and suffers less, they have more value, I'm being very quick here, than somebody, let's say, with a disability or somebody who might be terminally ill or the unborn. And uh, I want to uh, talk about this uh, out of their own mouths or out of their own pens, actually. Usually, this is a um, an article I wrote about, a journal article called Undignified Bioethics, by which the author meant humans have no intrinsic dignity. And I can spend at least an hour to an hour and a half on this, but since I've only got 10 minutes, I'll just skip right to some of what he says. His, his thesis is that we should do away with the idea of intrinsic human moral value, which of course is the predicate for universal human rights. Because if we aren't all equal, if we don't have equal moral value simply and merely because we're human, then there's no basis for universal human rights, and the entire... Uh, thesis of Western civilization collapses. And here's what he writes. The conception of dignity as inherent moral worth certainly seems coherent enough as an idea. Indeed, we can also see why this conception of dignity is employed in certain debates around bioethics. For if all individual human beings possess dignity, then they should not be viewed simply as resources that we can treat however we please. To take an example, then, it may be that we could achieve rapid and significant progress in medical science if we were to conduct wide-ranging medical experiments on groups of human beings. However, because human beings have dignity, so it is argued, this means that they possess a particular quality that grounds certain moral obligations and rights, which, of course, is correct. And he he says this very articulately, uh, perhaps better than I've ever said it, and yet he rejects it. He says, obviously, given the controversies over abortion, stem cell research, genetic interventions, animal experimentation, euthanasia, and so on, bioethics does need to engage in debates about which entities possess moral worth and why. But these are best conducted by using the notion of moral status and arguing over the characteristics that warrant possession of it, simply stipulating that all and only human beings possess this inherent moral worth because they have dignity is arbitrary and unhelpful. Right, it's unhelpful if you don't want to harvest, if you want to harvest people like Terry Schiavo for their organs. It's unhelpful if you want to use unborn human life for sources of organs and an experimentation. It's unhelpful if you want to have abortion absolutism that allows abortion through the ninth month. Yes, it is unhelpful, but it is extremely crucial if we're going to have a moral society that treats each and every human being as having equal moral worth. In fact, it's the only way we can have equal moral worth is human exceptionalism, equal dignity, equal human uh, worth simply because we're human. And we see in bioethics debates and and. This is not unanimous, but unless a bioethicist has a modifier in front of the term such as Catholic or conservative or pro-life, this is generally speaking, and I'm having to speak very generally, The view of the mainstream movement in bioethics, which is important because the bioethicists at Harvard and Princeton and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge teach the doctors of tomorrow, the nurses of tomorrow, the business leaders of tomorrow and the government leaders of tomorrow. They testify in court. They impact public policy. They advise legislators and so forth and presidents. So it's very, very important the first principles that they that bioethics or the people who are advising these institutions what they address and and how they uh view the importance or meaning of life so uh with regard to uh abortion, which i'll, I'll be very quick with um the dobbs decision uh which overturned Roe v. Wade, has unleashed, and it's, and it's a threat of the overturning of Roe, has unleashed what I call abortion absolutism. That is, the idea that there should be no limitations on abortion, post-viability, or for any reason, sex selection, eugenic abortion to destroy, you know, there's a, a search and destroy mission to destroy people with Down syndrome. In in Iceland, no p- children with Down syndrome are born because they're all aborted. And we're told this is an advance in somehow in human society. Yet if you want to see loving, caring, beautiful, sweet people, I don't know anybody who can top a uh, wonderful person with Down syndrome. So, so we are, uh, it used to be called safe, legal, and rare, right? Rare at least implied that there was a moral element to the question. These days, it's free abortion on demand without apology. And that denies the entire moral question about when and if onborn human life has any value whatsoever. And there have been a lot of states that have actually moved toward abortion through the ninth month. One is Vermont. And Vermont passed a law that says, quote, every individual who becomes pregnant has the fundamental right to choose to carry a pregnancy to term give birth to a child, or to have an abortion. There are no limitations on the abortion right. So that means through the ninth month. But this is the part that I want to bring to your attention. It then says in Part C, a fertilized egg, embryo, or fetus shall not have independent rights under Vermont law. That has nothing to do with whether that fetus or embryo is gestating in the body of a woman. It is saying that independent of that, a fetus and an embryo has the moral value of yeast. That's the only way to look at that. And why would that be in the law? Well, partially it's to protect women from being having uh, an abortion uh, question. But it's also to open up the door to experimentation and the use of unborn life, which are very valuable in this regard in medical research and to harvest for organs. There used to be during the embryonic stem cell debate, which I was really uh, deeply involved in, something called the 14-day rule. And the 14-day rule was put in by the International Society for Stem Cell Research. And the idea of the 14-day rule was to uh, assure a wary public that, don't worry, we're just going to take the earliest embryos and we'll do embryonic stem cell research on them. We'll use the ones that are frozen, and this will help cure your Uncle Charlie's Parkinson's. And at the time, I was saying this 14-day rule is a total phony. They're agreeing to a 14-day limitation because they can't extend uh, embryos in a Petri dish longer than that. So they're agreeing not to be allowed to do what they can't do anyway. But as soon as they're able to do that with the experiments that they will be conducting in that regard, they're going to get rid of the 14 day rule. I'm a prophet. The 14 day rule is now toast because they can keep embryos beyond 14 days. And um, at least this time, the International Society for Stem Cell Research was honest. They said no time limits of any kind. What does that open the door to? That opens the door to fetal. Farming, as it's sometimes called. The idea of growing fetuses for the purpose of harvesting their organs. In fact, there's even been proposals. For example, a uh, very famous uh, bioethicist named Jacob Apple wrote uh, a, a proposal in which he called, Are We Ready for a Market in Fetal Organs? Well, I'm sure Planned Parenthood would say yes. But beyond that, this is what he wrote. Listen to this and think about the moral value that lies at the heart of such an uh, advocacy. Since far more women have legal abortions each year in the United States than would be required to clear organ wait lists, if only a small percentage of women could be persuaded to carry their fetuses to the necessary point of development for transplantation, society might realize significant public health benefits. Government could even step into the marketplace itself to purchase fetal organs for patients on Medicare and Medicaid, ensuring that low income individuals had equal access to such organs while keeping the asking price elevated. Someday, if we are fortunate, science research may make possible farms of artificial wombs breeding fetuses for their organs, or even the miracle of men raising fetuses in their abdomens. You might say, well, okay, that's advocacy, but they would never do that, right? I hate to tell you, they already have. Back in the late 60s, scientists and researchers, I use the term loosely because good science requires good ethics. Good science requires good ethics, and that's what the CSC is all about. Good science requires good ethics. You had experiments where they talked about fetuses, but they were really babies. Because once a baby is either aborted, if the child remains alive, that's not a fetus, that's a baby. Or if you want to use a medical term, a neonate. Because once the living child is out of the mother, it's no longer a fetus by definition. Well, they did an re- a, a experiment to try to keep a fetus in a late-term abortion. This is back in '69 in liquid-containing oxygen, and, and kept it alive, I'd, I'd rather say him or her alive, I don't know what the what the child's sex was, for five hours in a, in, a, in a formula. And this is a quote from the study. For the whole five hours of life, the fetus did not respire. Irregular gasping movements twice a minute occurred in the middle of the experiment, but there was not a proper rep- respiration. Once the perfusion, which is pumping in of oxygenated blood, was stopped, however, the gasping respiratory efforts increased to 8 to 10 per minute. After stopping the circuit, the heart's load became irregular and eventually stopped. The fetus was quiet, making occasional stretching limb movements, very much like the ones reported in other human work. The fetus died 21 minutes after leaving the circuit. Now, you might think that such a monstrous experiment would receive the criticism of the scientific community, but you would be wrong. The study won the foundation prize award from the American Association of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This uh, was funded by the NIH, by the way. And this kind of work only stopped because a senator found out about it and was incensed and started to work against funding such research, and it. it It made some public headlines, and and the the, uh, scientists who would do such a thing retreated. And that senator, believe it or not, was Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy made a uh, campaign against this kind of work, and the American people were revolted. But would the American people be revolted today now that they are accepting the concept that human life does not have intrinsic value simply and merely because it is human? If today they started doing the same kind of experiment and said, but your Uncle Charlie's Parkinson's could be cured, would people say, no, we shouldn't do it? Well, if they believe in the intrinsic dignity of human life, they would be up in arms. But if they said, well, only those ridiculous pro-lifers believe that, you might allow this. And this stuff is being advocated at the highest levels of the institutions, and there's no real pushback because the guidelines that exist, such as they are, either have to do with government funding or they're voluntary. And as maybe it was Yogi Berra said, uh, a a voluntary guideline, I'm paraphrasing, is worth the paper it's written on. You were not supposed to do genetic uh, engineering of uh, fetuses and babies yet it's happened in China with the CRISPR technology already. They're now talking about creating synthetic embryos. This is mouse work, but they've uh, learned how to create embryos in mice where you don't need a sperm and it's not cloned, where they're able to uh, manipulate uh, an egg so that it begins to develop seemingly like a normal embryo. They're calling that synthetic embryo, and they're saying... Basically, that this could be a great source of organs. For example, researchers believe the work, if it was turned into humans, believe the work could also reduce animal experimentation and ultimately pave the way for new sources of cells and tissues for human transplantation. For example, skin cells from a leukemia patient could potentially be transferred into bone marrow stem cells to treat their condition. Well, this is the kind of thing they said about therapeutic cloning, and, and as in therapeutic cloning, they left out a crucial element. That is, in order to get those other cells, you have to form an embryo. And if these synthetic embryos develop like a normal embryo, how are they not an embryo? And it seems to me the burden of proof would have to be on the scientists. Because what matters is whether the, the unborn life is a human organism. If all it is is actually a, stem, a, a cell line, For example, uh, in induced pluripotent stem cells, you can take my skin cell, you can turn it into a a pluripotent stem cell, and then turn it into heart tissue, for example. There's certainly nothing unethical about that. And then you could take the heart uh, uh, cells that you get and perhaps treat my heart condition if I had one. And that would be perfectly ethical and wonderful. Induced pluripotent stem cells. But if you took a clone of me, made a clone of me, I don't have time to tell you how that's done, but it it's, it's, would be genetically nearly identical to me, developed it as an embryo, implanted it into an artificial womb, and then took its heart and gave me a heart transplant. That would be deeply unethical. And I see the hook is uh, is here, so I will finish by saying... Human exceptionalism is the key. Either human life has ultimate and intrinsic dignity simply because it's human, or we're just another animal in the forest. And if we're just another animal in the forest, that's precisely how we'll act. Thank you.
2: So, I may be about to step in it, but I'm going to talk about how science has been used as a pretext to dehumanize people in the era of COVID, especially those who have chosen not to be vaccinated with the COVID vaccines. But I want to be very clear at the beginning. The issue I'm raising is not whether you favor COVID vaccinations or think they are effective or moral. Those are actually very interesting questions, but that's not the issue I'm going to be talking about. The issue is how do we treat sincere and decent people who make different medical choices than we do? And although COVID is an example, there are other examples that actually Wes could talk about uh, involving patient determination and and parents deciding for treatment or futile care or other things where these same sorts of things apply. But I think this is a particularly uh, challenging uh, and, and impactful example. So A little bit of background, following widespread abuses in medical science post-World War II, say in places like Nazi Germany, and actually in America with things like the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, um, uh, in the Nazi case, things like eugenics, these these abuses of medical science were actually promoted in the name of Darwinian science. But following the revulsion of people post-World War II on these abuses of medical science, there developed strong support for a person's right to determine the medical treatments he or she receives. This was regarded as a fundamental human right. This right was accepted by people of all parties, creeds, races, religions. But I would argue that in less than two years, the COVID pandemic has pretty much obliterated, at least in Europe and the United States, that cultural consensus about the right of people to determine what medical treatments they receive. As a result, we have witnessed a mass campaign to dehumanize an entire class of people because of their medical choices. Uh, fellow citizens who choose not to be vaccinated with the COVID vaccines have been branded. And now, I'm the, the language I'm using is going to be pretty powerful, and I hope. In a way, horrific, but they're direct quotes from a variety of sources, which I've written an article on this, and so if you actually want to see who said these things, you can go and track them down. But so people who have not been vaccinated in America have been branded as narcissists, child abusers, parasites. They have been accused of killing off their fellow citizens. That was another direct quote. They have been denounced as dangerous people from poorer or less educated parts of society. They have been described as, quote, a leech on everyone else's participation in making America healthy and safe, unquote. A sitting federal judge has declared that the vast majority of unvaccinated adults are either, take your pick, uninformed and irrational or selfish and unpatriotic. A member of a famous rock band has labeled them an enemy of society with a delusional evil idea. The Prime Minister of Canada has called people who choose not to be vaccinated as misogynist and racist. A New York newspaper, New York Daily News, has derided the unvaccinated as low in IQ. The Republican governor of Alabama, this is not just, this goes beyond particular parties. The Republican governor of Alabama urged that it's time to start blaming the unvaccinated folks. Quote, accusing them of embracing a horrible lifestyle. A former speechwriter for George W. Bush has compared the unvaccinated to cancer, calling them, quote, the malignant minority. The president of France claims unvaccinated are not even citizens. This kind of othering in the name of science is repulsive. The closest analog that I can find to anything like this in in modern society, at least in America, goes back to the social Darwinist eugenics movement in the early 20th century, where eugenists like Margaret Sanger succeeded invoking science to sterilize people. They similarly labeled the exact same labels, parasites, leeches, cancerous growths. If you read my book, Darwin Day in America, you'll see how the very terms being used today to demonize and dehumanize unvaccinated people are the exact same terms and analogies made by the Darwinian eugenists. Sadly, too many religious leaders have been silent about the current dehumanization, or worse, they've egged it on. Francis Collins, perhaps the nation's most noted evangelical Christian scientist, fanned the flames of hatred against unvaccinated. And if you read his rhetoric from the past year of tying them to killing others and being not loving their neighbors, I mean, high voltage rhetoric. Really demonizing his fellow Christians. Evangelical political commentator David French has lashed out at unvaccinated Christians for espousing views he says are extreme, dangerous, and for, in his view, having a hardened heart where reason and virtue have difficulty penetrating. No judgmentalism there. And if you know David French, he's very much one to attack other people for being judgmental. Maybe he should look in the mirror. This kind of rhetoric against others has real world consequences. Unvaccinated people have lost their jobs, their livelihoods, often by government decree. They've been denied unemployment benefits, benefits they paid through through their payroll taxes. Doctors have announced that they will not serve unvaccinated people. Unvaccinated patients have been denied life-saving medical treatments like organ transplants. Unvaccinated people have been denied access to marriage licenses. Judges have tried to deny child visitation rights to parents who are not vaccinated. In many jurisdictions, healthy unvaccinated people were banned from stores, theaters, sporting events. In Canada, one province even authorized grocery stores to ban the unvaccinated, only relenting after a massive public backlash. Just ponder for a moment the type of mindset someone must have to authorize the denial of access to food. Again, this is not about whether you think the vaccines are good or bad, or whether you've been vaccinated or not, or whether this is about how we treat people who make different medical choices than we do. But apparently, this level of degradation isn't enough. The editorial board, and it's not really about complete right or left or blue or red. The editorial board of the Salt Lake City Tribune opined earlier this year that the government should, quote deploy the National Guard to ensure that people without proof of vaccination would not be allowed well anywhere, unquote. It wasn't just a columnist. That was the editorial board for the entire paper. Um, in Quebec, there was, well, actually, I don't have time for that, but there's a really creepy show with little kids being catechized on what you should do with adults who aren't vaccinated. And it I mean, you can find it on online, and if you really want to be creeped out, you should watch it. According to a nationwide survey earlier this year in the U.S., many voters affiliated with a certain political party that I won't name because we're nonpartisan have all but abandoned support for civil liberties in the era of COVID. Nearly 60% said they would favor a government policy requiring that citizens remain confined to their homes at all times, except for emergencies if they refuse to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Almost half, 50%, think federal and state governments should be able to fine or imprison individuals who publicly question the efficacy of the existing COVID-19 vaccines on social media, television, radio, or in online or digital publications. Simply to question and debate, you should be fined or uh, imprisoned. Nearly the same amount favor governments requiring citizens to temporarily live in designated facilities or locations if they refuse to get a COVID-19 vaccine. These repressive measures, of course, are justified in the name of science, or as Steve Meyer talked last night, the science. But is that really what's going on? Consider the uncontroverted fact that millions of unvaccinated Americans have had COVID-19 already, according to research released earlier this year by the Centers for Disease Control, not by some fringe group, but released earlier this year. Unvaccinated persons who already had COVID-19 were three times less likely to get COVID than vaccinated individuals who hadn't had COVID. So there's absolutely no scientific basis for punishing unvaccinated people who already had COVID or punishing them more than vaccinated people. Yet punitive policies targeting unvaccinated Americans and demonizing pretty much made no distinction between those who have or haven't had COVID. And advocates for such policies don't even attempt to explain why. Now, um, let me sort of conclude here. This demonization of the unvaccinated displays with painful clarity the consequences of a wrong view of science. And Steve Meyer got into this a little last night of saying that true science proceeds when scientists, are, and I'd say other people too, are allowed to argue and make arguments and defend back and forth. I say the reason so many people, even people of faith, even leading pastors on both the right and left, have basically bought into demonizing and dehumanizing people for their medical choices, in this case, the COVID-19 vaccines, is because they have a false view of science as some sort of dogma. They treat claims made in the name of science by government officials and people in authority completely uncritically, as if it's the voice of God. But it's not. Science is an eminently human enterprise. It's it's a wonderful enterprise. But it's a human enterprise, not divine revelation. And humans are fallible. So it is healthy to raise questions, especially when authority figures misuse science to demonize others. Indeed, it's imperative, I say, that we do educate others on the need to think critically when it comes to claims about science, whether it be claims that God can't exist or that human life has no value, uh, or that some races are more valuable than others, those claims made in the name of science, it is healthy to create a culture where people do not treat claims made in the science as the voice of God, but as human claims that are worthy of debate, discussion, refutation, and, uh, and critical analysis. Thank you.
0: That was Wesley J. Smith and John West speaking on thinking that has gone wrong and yet has gained traction under the heading of scientific thinking. They spoke as part of a panel discussion given at an insider's briefing for the Center for Science and Culture held in August 2022. We hope that this has been more than merely sobering information for you, though it is that. We do hope that it will motivate you also, though, to keep informed on these trends so that together we can stand for a better, truer, more human view of science, reality, and ourselves as human beings. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us
1: at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is
0: Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.